Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into Nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello and welcome to One More Life, the gaming podcast from RadioTimes.com. I'm your host, Rob Lean, and each week I'll be joined by a new guest to learn about their life with gaming. This week's guest is none other than Jason Kingsley, OBE, the founder and CEO of Rebellion Developments. One of the UK's biggest indie developers, Rebellion has released some massive games over the years, including the much-loved Sniper Elite franchise and its horror spin-off Zombie Army. Jason started out playing arcade games in a chip shop, and now he runs a 500-person company and even received an OBE at Buckingham Palace for his service to the British economy. He is also an avid historian. If you look at his Instagram, you'll see pictures of him wearing chainmail and riding horses. There was a sword on the wall behind him while I was talking to him. And he even has his own YouTube channel called Modern History TV. We touch on all that and loads more, including a brilliant anecdote about a rushed Robocop game. So let's load up that conversation. Jason, thank you very much for coming on the show. Obviously, we know you now as the CEO and founder of Rebellion, who have some some massive games like Sniper Elite and Zombie Army over the years. But I kind of like to always start right back at the beginning. I wonder what are some of like your very earliest memories of games and gaming? Well, weirdly, I, I, when you asked me that i can't remember not being involved in making up games i used to obviously board games so so my earliest memories of of games were were pre-computer i remember i used to enjoy playing monopoly in particular much to the annoyance of my family then i made up variations on the rule of monopoly because i thought it was a bit boring i invented what i called nuclear monopoly where once you got a hotel you could then start buying um, nuclear missiles that you could send off with a roll <laughs> of a dice round the board. And if they, wherever they landed by pure luck, would be reduced back down to rubble. Now, I think I was probably about six or seven years old when I created that. So I didn't quite understand the ramifications of what I was actually simulating there. But um, I think what it what it showed is, is that I was interested in exploring gameplay and exploring modifications of other people's games from the very earliest. I wasn't satisfied with just playing the game. I had to kind of get beyond that, uh, get into the mechanics of it. I can see where the motivation would come from as well. Because Monopoly, you know, it can go on for a while. It does drag on a bit. Not to say that it gets a bit boring, but, you know, you could liven up kind of the latter stages of Monopoly a bit, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a, there's a fascination with the mechanics within a game from a very early stage. That's why I started I started programming. I don't program anymore. I was very bad at it. And my brother was much better than me. It was very clear that uh, I was better at coming up with the design. But I was also fascinated by being behind the curtain, if you like, by being a, a, a games master. Uh, I played Tunnels and Trolls extensively at school, wrote scenarios and kind of created adventures for people and then other people playing them. And when you think about it, that's more or less what I do 
to this day, I, I empower well over 500 full-time members of staff now at Rebellion. And, and they're very talented and they make games, but my brother and I nudge them. We nudge those games in, in the direction we think it needs to go. Nudging is a great word for it as well, very uh, technical term. Well, I think it's like directing, really. I mean, if you're the director of a, of a movie or a TV show, your job, really, if everybody's doing everything really well, and the way you want it, your job is to sit back and just watch. But then you kind of might look at a performance and go, great performance, but could you try it this way? Because I think it's a bit better for the narrative or whatever it might be. And your job is to judge whether it's about right and to nudge it in a direction that is what you want. You don't tell people how to do their job. You kind of observe and then modify what it is. Yeah, definitely. And it's uh, interesting you should mention um, Tunnels and Trolls. There. So that was kind of a in the UK, at least, that was a precursor to, to Dungeons and Dragons, right? It came out just before one of the very earliest role-playing games uh, came out in the UK just before uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Kind of was a parody of Dungeons and Dragons, actually, which you can tell with the name. It was a very simplified set of rules uh, compared to even first edition Dungeons and Dragons, and I kind of stumbled across it because I read a small ad in the back of a magazine and sent off my postal order for those who remember paying for things and waited the 28 days, which meant you more or less forgot you'd ordered something. Then it would come in the post and you'd sort of go, oh, yeah, I remember ordering that a month ago. You sort of enjoy it in a sort of delayed gratification way, whereas these days with digital delivery, you want something, you get it. I imagine it was... Uh maybe a challenge to then get other people to want to uh, to get involved in it with you well that was the biggest issue I mean, and again sort of part factor of my life has always been i i want to make games for other people to play i i probably enjoy making games for other people to play slightly more than actually playing them i have a real problem sometimes analyzing the game that i'm playing and looking at it from the perspective of a games maker which is really annoying um it's a bit like i'm i i train my own horses and it's a bit like looking at an actor in a movie who's supposed to be a kind of competent horse person and they're riding and they're barely staying on and you know they've had four lessons bless them they're trying really hard but of course 99.9 percent of the watching population won't notice that they're listening to one side and the horse hasn't got a clue what they're supposed to be doing because they can't understand the language the rider's using it doesn't matter for most people and i think that's probably the same with the games industry is so vast that most people just enjoy games for what they are. But uh, the few of us that actually make games for a living sometimes can't help but try and, try and look behind it and work out, well, I wonder why they did it that way. And uh, that's interesting. <laughs> and I bet like with uh, your other interests as well, like you say, the horses and the historical stuff that you're very into, I bet you can't help but like when you're looking at say, a historical game that's got horses in it, that you've like, distracted, oh, so they've done it this way, and it's this, so that horse wouldn't actually do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting tension between historically authentic, whatever that means, and that in itself is a big issue, how, how do you make something, is something ever historically authentic, and making a good game. I remember once we, we were making a game called Checkered Flag back in the day for Atari on the Atari Jaguar. It was a bit like virtual racing. And we modelled the controls so that the car controlled like a Formula One car. Now, you can't drive a Formula One car with a Jaguar controller. And quite frankly, nobody, you, you can't just get in a Formula One car and drive it successfully. I would think everybody that ever tries to drive a Formula One car will fail to drive it and or crash it on the first corner it's an it's, an, it's a skill you've got to develop over time so if you want to deliver the fantasy of somebody being a medieval knight for example or driving a fast car you've got to slightly nerf that experience you've got to give them the experience the fantasy that they are a medieval knight or a fantastic kind of slayer of dragons or whatever it might be or a formula one driver but it isn't the same as being that uh, and th th there's always a balance there. You've got to, like with Sniper Elite, we've used a lot of real snipers. We've worked with a lot of real snipers. And one of the takeaways from what sniping is, is it's quite boring. You often wait a long time to decide that you've not got a shot and then you go away again and nobody even knows you were there. You also do things like poo in plastic bags and you have to take your own poo back with you, which is an unpleasant side of it, quite hard to simulate in a computer game. And, you know, 
you don't want to make a game where somebody has to wait for three days to decide they don't have a shot and then they return to base and they get another mission. That's not interesting. So you've sort of always got that balance between entertainment and realism in, in anything and everything we do. Yeah, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? And um, just to rewind slightly, sorry, I was wondering, you're saying a lot of your kind of earliest gameplay memories are kind of pre-computer. I wonder what are some of like the first kind of like computer game or video game uh, experiences that you had? Well, Chris, my brother, was hugely interested in... We, we used to build our own electronics. You could get bags of electronic bits and bobs and PCBs and you could solder them together. And there were some magazines where they give you a project, you know, an LED chaser, and you have to sort of solder things and get it working. Chris bought himself an Educate, which was a very, very early home computer. And by very early, I mean, I think it had eight bits of RAM. Um, not megabits or yeah, 8K or anything like that. It was, it was tiny, minuscule. He built it and you could get it to turn on and off the two hex displays, I think. And that was about it. The process was in the building. Yeah, actually programming it to do anything was, was interesting, but wasn't really there. But then fast forward to our long suffering parents having bought me a pony. They bought my brother a computer, a Commodore PET. Uh, which I was fascinated by as well. Now, Commodore Pets, for those that don't know, are a very early desktop computer, not really designed for games at all. They're more their business thing. They're like a glorified typewriter, really. They were powerful at the time. They had a monochrome display, a sort of glowy green display, which is quite cool. And if you wanted to make games, you had to use the ASCII characters to act as your sprites. And I after two long weekends, managed to program a space flying game. So this would have been roughly the late 70s. I just watched Star Wars and was inspired by flying and shooting X-Wing fighters. And I managed with peaks and pokes to build a, a game where the, the TIE fighter would, would drift away and you had to sort of press the arrow keys to sort of get in the center. And if you got it in the center and press the space bar, you'd shoot it and it would explode and uh, well, explode into ASCII characters, and then another one would come on the screen, and you had to track it down and shoot it. So, very, very basic gameplay. But actually, thinking about it, trying to simulate the world, a world in a very powerful, for the time, computer, but using very limited set of tools. Um, and it was, it was a, it was a not virtual reality, but a form of virtual reality. We we all talk about virtual reality these days and virtual production. Back in the day, that's exactly what we were trying to do. We just didn't have the tools necessary. And it's interesting because uh, didn't you later through Rebellion end up working on some, some real Star Wars games? Yes, we did several. We did several Battlezone titles on portable uh, games. We worked very closely with Lucas before they were owned by Disney. We did a lot of those. And that was when we were doing an awful lot of work for hire. We, we made Simpsons games. We made James Bond games. We made Harry Potter games. We were a work for hire company, we're a very successful work for hire company. And that was that was great. We got to work with some amazing franchises. Uh, we did Aliens vs. Predator with Fox. Fox then asked us to revisit Aliens vs. Predator. And it was, it was a wonderful time, but you are limited to working within the rules of the franchise. Yeah, it must be difficult. And like, do you feel like sometimes, maybe we're through this now, I feel like there was a point in time, I'm not sure quite exactly how to define it, when people kind of looked, looked down on, on licensed games. I, I, growing up, that was the main thing I always drifted to, as if it had something I, I knew from before on the box, I would drift to it more than, than something else. Yeah, I think I think it's it's weird because we get asked all the time, Could you know, do you want to license this product and make it into a computer game? And obviously we make our original our own original games, which are very successful. So we don't really work with licenses because you don't need to anymore. You, you can do. There's some great licenses out there. There's some really great books that have been turned into great games. The Witcher game, for example, the books are fantastic read them um and the, the game really has what really got the witcher as a sort of a thing in the west with great respect to the, the the sort of polish heritage it wasn't widely known as a fantasy thing in the west but the, the game is what put it in the minds of people and of course then the tv show um back in the day there was a lot of shovelware as well there wasn't there there were there was get a license and that's a short cut to marketing what is basically a shovelware game just another platform game. I remember a, a colleague of mine working for a company and um, the company had taken a lot of money to work on a, I think it was either Robocop or Batman, I can't remember which one. 
and they hadn't actually delivered one of the games and they had like six weeks to deliver a Robocop game. So they took Batman, the Batman game they'd done, changed the main sprite, gave it a bit more weight, you know, so if you pressed stop, it kept going a little bit longer and effectively reskinned the Batman game and called it Robocop. And it sold, sold quite well. I didn't know until I was told that quite a few years later that it was effectively the same game with a different different skin over the top, which kind of explains the confusing concept of Robocop having a grappling hook, which, <laughs> which he never had in the in the movie, which just sort of accepted gameplay components. So there was all sorts of stuff like that. There was shovelware that was done under constrained circumstances. And back in the day, you could you could get commissioned to make a game with little more than a screenshot and a couple of pages of dot matrix printed presentation. And you were trusted to have a go. And that's what we did. I created a game called Blade Warrior with a really nice screenshot and about three pages of dot matrix printed. It was fascinating. Really, the games industry went from a hobby industry done by enthusiasts, which is where we got the reputation for being whiz kids and people working in their bedrooms because literally that's what we some of us were that was decades ago but that that reputation has stuck a little bit in the games industry that sort of formative those formative years i remember playing a game on a bulletin board and it was a 320 board so it's slightly faster than you could type if you're a speed typist the data was coming down now I remember doing play by mail games for example where you'd send off your turn by by post and expect a, a return, or you'd be told what was happening. And I remember working with people who lived in different houses around the country and literally driving floppy disks to and from different, um, you know, uh, co-workers to get them to, to, to do different things. That, that was by far and away the fastest way of getting data from Oxford to Guildford, say. Yeah, it was mad, like the, the different kind of stages the technology has gone through to get to to where we are now like for me it was like i remember having knights of the old republic but i didn't have it but one guy at my school had it and it was on five discs and these five yeah. discs would just get like passed around like the bible amongst different kids absolutely and what's the joke now somebody looks at a floppy disk um, and goes oh look you've 3d printed the save icon uh <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by amazon prime you know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. And we haven't really touched on the arcade side of it. Am I right in saying that was quite a big part of your kind of growing up was being on the arcade machines and there was one at a chip shop, I seem to recall? Yes, absolutely. There was a Scramble arcade machine at our local chip shop. For those that don't know, the, the, the game Scramble, you control, a, you control a little ship, but it goes from left to right. Or rather, the ship sort of can, can move within the window of the screen and the screen scrolls from right to left underneath you. So you feel like you're flying over landscape, but the landscape's actually scrolling underneath you. You had 
guns which fired forwards and you had bombs which you could drop in a sort of parabolic arc onto the landscape below and there were rockets and other things coming towards you horizontally so it was about remembering the order of where you needed to be before you could get to new places i remember making a breakthrough getting to sort of level four wondering what level four graphics would look like and what they did is they did recycled level one graphics made them red instead of purple <laughs> or green and i remember thinking kind of still works but that's a bit cheap <laughs> they're like counting on not many people getting that far I, I think so i i genuinely think so i remember a colleague told me that he was commissioned to make a game with four levels is back in the day long long time ago back in the 8-bit days and he'd run out of time but he and he'd he'd only done three of the levels of the four levels he was contracted to do so what he did was he made it so that you automatically died at the end of level three whatever you did <laughs> and so there became this mythical fourth level which was marketed as four levels and the production the publishing company didn't know that it didn't have four levels but it didn't have four levels because he didn't get around to doing it and whatever you did you just died your, your ship got destroyed in that sort of last few the last few seconds of reaching towards the end of the third level um and i remember thinking yeah i wonder if people know about that they probably don't and sort of myths grow up like the myth about them um, being able to get to the volcano in battle zone mm. battle zone was another one of my i remember seeing that in the in the days of actual video arcades a lot of people will only know them from uh, stranger things and uh, the beginning of tron for example but those genuinely existed you usually had to walk through smoke-filled uh, fruit machines because the arcade machines were all at the back they were brilliant they're absolutely brilliant but you know it was a fairly old style pub atmosphere definitely cigarette smoke wherever you went and kind of gambling dodgy types in the fore in the foreground and all the kids out the back playing in the computer games i remember battle zone and it was great and different because it had a sort of pair of plastic binoculars attached to the front of the arcade screen which which in an incredibly unhygienic way <laughs> you needed to push push your head against <laughs> to play the arcade game you know on reflection i'm sure that was a live vector for all sorts of coughs sneezes and diseases and in the sort of post-pandemic world i don't guess that wouldn't be allowed but back in then those days we were surrounded by cigarette smoke the floors were probably sticky like a really dodgy disco and there was a world a virtual world of escapism and technology in the back of these arcades and uh, it was brilliant battle zone is about first person perspective driving a, a science fiction tank we own it we've done more versions of battle zone now we did battle zone on the playstation vr which has you know and, and other vr systems which i was very excited about revisiting but that was formative as well because you were drawn into vector drawn glowing lines and that was the inspiration for tron the movie tron um the glowing cyber lines the world of cyberspace um, which is a bit of a retro term these days but back then cyber was dead exciting well it still is to be honest it's just not quite glowy and neon as we thought it was going to be i believe you've come prepared with your top five arcade games battle zone is one of them i want to tell us what the other ones are well scramble battle zone i really liked space invaders the first space invaders machine i came across was monochrome but it had plastic colored strips uh, placed over the screen to give the illusion of different colors which sort of did make it different colors but it's kind of a hardware hack isn't it i remember that that was at the local squash club uh, and i remember parents used to play squash and we would sit waiting for them to play a game of squash and there was a the, you know there was a, a space invader so my brother and i would would put 10p i think we probably ended up with 10p each or maybe 20p each or something that had to last us <laughs> the length of a squash of a squash game <laughs> and we got quite good at it we had an atari 800 and a slot in cartridge which had the atari version of space invaders on it which is a slightly different version with it with a joystick and i remember spending a long saturday playing that game with chris all the way around the clock i think we must have spent about six hours playing that game and we got to 999 million 999 and it was so exciting what would happen when we when we got to the maximum score and you'll probably guess that it just reset to zero. <laughs> um, it was one of my cyber disappointments. I, I, I imagined something special would happen at this point, and it, it did in a way. It just reset. And it was a kind of 
a bit of a, a bit of a learning philosophical moment there mm. in life. You know, be careful what you wish for. It's just <laughs> life just resets then. So it was that, and then there was a game that came a lot later, which was called Exevius. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It was Xevious, Exevius, which was a vertical scrolling, beautiful, beautiful game with really interesting sound effects, sort of plinking, squeaking sound effects. So you, you were, it's a vertical scrolling shooter. Uh, that absorbed quite a lot of my money, as did a later arcade game called Sinistar. Sinistar lives. <laughs> you had to go around mining asteroids, getting points to make a cine bomb or sine bomb. I don't know how you pronounce it again. It was all in my head. And if you had enough of those bombs, you could destroy the Sinistar. But the Sinistar was also mining and trying to build this sort of face and when it was there, it would then charge around the screen and and, and absolutely uh, destroy you very quickly. Well, that was one of the hardest games I've ever played. I think I once got to level three, once. You know, <laughs> uh, le- level uh, maybe it gets impossible. I don't know how to play it really. But uh, and that was the first game that I drew blood over because I looked down and I thought this is really weird. I'm sweating in a strange way, and I realised I wasn't sweating. I'd actually got a blister on my hand from controlling the joystick i had burst the blister i had proceeded to bleed all over the arcade <laughs> machine because i was playing it that ferociously so i'm very sorry to some sin lester some arcade uh, machine <laughs> sanitizer had <laughs> to clean blood off a sinistar arcade machine decades ago and that was me i didn't know what to do i couldn't go and, i couldn't find anybody to tell i've bled over your machine i'm sorry <laughs> but that shows you how absorbing the game was for me and then i'm trying to think of other ones so the, then the arcades go away really because back in those days the arcades were the top processors they had the best screens they had a sort of physical structure to them and home computers were a sort of pale shadow and I can vaguely remember the time when I thought, you know what, the machines we've got at home now are as good as or getting nearly as good as the arcade machines. And then I can remember the point where it's like, actually, we're better now than the arcade machines and nobody was going to the arcade machines. So for a while, the arcades were the place to go to get the cutting edge gaming experience. But, you know, they, they, they went away and I kind of miss them in a way. There was something quite grotty and wonderful about the old arcades yeah definitely it's like never shall we see their their like again (laughs) i wonder you and your brother before you founded rebellion you were deep in your studies and your your parents were academics themselves i believe and i wonder was there any uh hesitance from them when you were like we want to go start our own games company well mum Mum was a was a was a teacher and did a lot of teacher training. Um, my dad was a doctor, but also did a lot of research, um, um, medical research as well. So sort of a combination of two very worthy jobs, but with a bit of research. I think parents are always hopeful that their kids will get a job that will support them, and I think there's natural concern for any new frontier that if your kids are getting into this new thing, is this going to be a fad? Is this going to be a disaster they're going to waste a lot of time and then have to go and get an ordinary job in a bank or whatever you know whatever the standard of become a trained for doctor whatever those sort of worthy jobs that we always are always going to need would be and i think i think it was probably a, a few decades ago now where rebellion was successful had a number of series of number one hits and our mum finally admitted that maybe we did have proper jobs you know, <laughs> maybe maybe running a multinational successful computer games company was a proper job as opposed to being a teacher a doctor a dentist or a banker but any new industry is is a concern you know that there are new industries that pop up now which you think people are getting into that sounds a little bit like a gold rush you know nfts for example we kind of come and gone a bit a lot of people have made money initially and then got out of it or got into the next big thing and i'm I'm always worried that there's a bit of a grass is greener the new industry and the games industry was was very minor to begin with is now much bigger than movies is now much bigger than music which is still funny because we don't get talked about as if we're a big industry <laughs> We really don't. We've got our own film studios. We do a lot of work with film and TV as well. And 
for those who don't know, I, I run Modern History TV, my own YouTube channel. So I do a lot of filming and I create a lot of filmed content. And as a result of that, I get to meet people and I get pitched ideas for games all the time. And I always want to give people the time if I possibly can, unless they come across as totally mad. And so somebody will pitch me this 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 story. I've got this great story about this thing happens and it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. It'll make a great game. It's like, now that's a story. What what's the game? Is it first person, third person? Is it a side scroller? Is it a what what's the game? Oh that that's your your bit. Your bit. <laughs> and and I once reversed it on somebody. I said, I've got this great idea for a movie. This is a fairly famous movie producer. Because uh, they just pitched me a, a game, which we didn't do. And I pitched them rather sarcastically, I'm afraid, because um, I knew this relationship wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> I pitched them this really great idea for a movie. I said, this is great. I've got a fantastic idea for a movie. There's a volcano and stuff happens and it's really exciting. <laughs> and I went, yeah. And I, no, no, that, that's it. That's the pitch. You've got to write the script and everything and the story. But you know, that, my idea is it's a, a volcano is about to erupt and it would be great. It'd be a great movie. And I went, but there's no story or narrative. No, no, no. That's your job. You you do that. <laughs> Just as we would put in the game from your story idea, I'm giving you a kind of an idea that you put the story in. So can you know we go fifty fifty on it? All right. Didn't go down particularly well. How <laughs> <laughs> can imagine? <laughs> Have you ever had someone like you know some random person who you've met at a thing has, has said, "I've got this great idea for a game," and then you're like, "Actually, you're right. Like we're going to make that." <laughs> No, 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 I haven't. I, I've listened to people give me a version of a game we've already made. Um, yeah, that's or, a sniper, or, right? Yeah, we've got this great idea about it as a World War II sniper. It's going to be really good. It's like, yeah, yeah, we make that game. Um, <laughs> yeah, but my game is going to be a variation on it. Well, great, but thank you. Go go ahead. Good luck. Go go and employ 150 people for three years and, and, and go make it. Great. Don't You don't need us. We've already done it. Yeah, the weird thing is, because I'm, <laughs> I'm known in different areas, I'm known in the games side as well, but I'm also known in the YouTube community as well. And then those two collide and people go, hang on, you're that bloke that does the YouTube channel. Are you the same bloke? Yeah, I am the same bloke that does Sniper Elite and Zombie Army. Yeah, yeah, that's my company. What? And they, they can't quite get their head around the idea that people can do lots of things in their lives. It's really funny. I don't fly very much these days. I'm trying to reduce my carbon footprint a lot. And uh, these days, virtual meetings are just easier, to be honest. The last time I flew, I was waiting in the queue in uh, in the States. And this bloke approached me and he was carrying a gun, you know, one of those scary guns. And I was thinking, oh, what's going to happen now? And he said, come with me. And I was thinking, here we go. I'm going to miss my flight. Never mind. I've not done anything wrong. My paperwork's in order. I'm not smuggling anything. <laughs> so it's just going to be time, isn't it? And he and he showed me, he said, can you open your bag? And he said, fine. He said, I'm a huge fan. I went, <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I love your I love your your YouTube channel. And he said, oh, can you? And he recognized me and he dragged me out of this queue <laughs> and I jumped the queue and he told me a shortcut to get where I wanted to go. And I I went from thinking, oh, no, I'm I'm going to be delayed. And, you know, this big bloke with a gun and you don't mess with people like that to having a huge fan, him shaking my hand and saying good luck. And I look forward to the next video <laughs> and wandering through again. And it, it's interesting how new media, new types of media have have expanded the experience that people get. You You can be known in all sorts of different ways. And sometimes the two areas you're known in or three areas you're known in don't actually overlap until they suddenly do. And then they collide in a slightly uncomfortable realization where people knew the same name in two different scenarios, but hadn't put the fact together that you're the same person. So <laughs> I was wondering now that, you know, you're, you're at the point where the company's got, was it 500 employees? Yeah. You said one of the biggest kind of independent games companies in the UK or anywhere, I imagine. In hindsight, how, how did you go from you know you and your brother to 500 people what were some of the key moments along the way i would like to say it was all carefully uh, coordinated and planned from the earliest uh, days i remember once giving an interview to a magazine saying i didn't want to get bigger than 25 people i remember the first office we had we had a small table which we could every monday morning we'd sit everybody around that table and we'd discuss what we we're going to do that week it's weird sometimes 
opportunities pop up and you think, well, let's, let's go with this opportunity to see where it takes us. We've got a lot of work, got a lot of games being made at the moment. We're, we're still recruiting. We're well over 500 members of staff now. You know, the pandemic came along and everybody started work from home. And now we operate a sort of almost entirely hybrid, depending on certain requirements, you know, certain certain skills need to be in the office, but not all of them. And we try to be flexible to allow people to incorporate their work and life in a slightly more integrated way rather than work being nine to five and home being everything else. It's sort of like I do. I often start work at six. I'll do my first email six in the morning. I'll then go out, do the horses, train the horses or feed them or whatever uh, for an hour, muck them out, come back in, do my early morning work meetings, lunchtime, integrate all the things that are in my life in, in one way. And I think as a result of that, we're getting uh, kind of a happier workforce. We're getting happier, more creative people. But it's weird. We never really plan to be a big, successful company. That's almost a thing that happens if you're enjoying what you do, making good product, people are buying it, you're making sensible decisions, you're not kind of gambling. Uh, business to me is not about gambling. Business is about making decisions and trying to control the risk and trying to manage the outcome a little bit and trying to work with people and do good deeds, trying to help people run their businesses as well. And I've always felt that business is about two people getting into a relationship, a deal, and both sides feeling that that's right and fair and both sides gaining something from it. I've never really understood the idea that business is zero sum because it isn't. Business should be about mutual support and everybody benefiting. Yeah. It's interesting kind of looking at the journey of rebellion. It looks like you've cherry picked and acquired various things that, you know, you were very interested in or a, a fan of yourself, like you were saying about Tunnels and Trolls and Battlezone games and famously 2000 AD as well. My vision of you is like a kid in a candy shop. It's like, oh, yes, I would like that. I would like that. <laughs> it is great to be in a position to, in many ways, try, try and rescue and re relaunch things. So, 2000 AD, the acquisition of 2000 AD was part driven by business. We felt there was a good business there. It was on its knees as a business. It wasn't doing very well. We managed to acquire it and reinvest in it and reinvigorate it and it's gone from strength to strength. So that's great. Comics industry is really important. I think comics are the earliest precursors to computer games. Comics predate radio plays. They predate Saturday morning action adventure movies the literal cliffhangers back in the day that were the Saturday matinee shows for kids. Comics are the original. They're the ancients of the industry. And we, we managed to reunite a vast library of comics. We call it the treasure of British comics. And we're republishing some of the work, some of the earliest work by Jerry Siegel, who created Superman, for example, characters like the spider king of crime uh, who's a very odd character it appears to be a criminal but often ends up by accident doing good it's very strange predates spider-man by by decades we've got some very very interesting comic books that really ought to be read by anybody that's interested in genre fiction back in those days of course comics weren't superheroes a lot of people think of comic books as just superheroes and that was a tiny subgenre of comics arguably still is a tiny subgenre of comics in the rest of the world but in the western world we're we're so sort of saturated with men and women in lycra who have great physiques and superpowers that we sort of forget that comics covered boy scouts ponies being stolen people wanting to become ballerinas people running away to the circus the ordinary stories of ordinary people and we so we've reunited those we've we've lit, in some cases literally pulled things out of skips or out of damp basements and we're in the process of managing and curating the collection trying to bring things back so that people can read them for example fran of the floods fran of the floods was a girl England floods is an environmental disaster. Uh, England floods and she needs to get to Scotland and she has to fight her way through a flooded England. And th th this is a fascinating sociological study, but it's also an action piece all about environmental disasters. But in the in the 70s. So I feel like Rebellion is very much champion of genre entertainment. We guard it and we try to make it available so people know where the likes of successful 
tropes like Tomb Raider come from. Tomb Raider didn't spring from nowhere. Tomb Raider came from the Indiana Jones movies, but those in turn came from the Saturday morning cartoon series, Saturday morning action adventure stories, which in turn come from earlier comic books. You know, so so we we stand on the on the shoulders of giants in in the games industry, and I think we should celebrate our heritage because it goes back goes back a long way. Our comic collection goes back to 1888 and comic cuts for boys. Wow, that's amazing! It's one of the things I wanted to ask you, and maybe this is the time to do it. Is um with the 2000 AD side of it, are there more plans to to do more kind of say take Judge Dredd and put him? in a big game and stuff like that or is it more kind of leaving things in their own lanes i think it depends it depends what ideas we come up with and 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 how much time we've got spare we got as i say over 500 full-time members of staff highly talented people in all sorts of different specialities and we don't have enough people to make all the games we want to make (laughs) people go why don't you make a medieval game it's like yeah i'd love to why don't you do a judge red game yeah i'd love to you tell me where i'm going to find another 250 highly talented individuals to make that game as well as all the other games that we're making so um the simple answer is yes when we get time the world needs more more content that entertains people i firmly believe that my role is to be the champion of the player and is to say to my team cool that's a really great idea but does the does it matter to the player does the player know that their decision has made a fundamental difference to um, the outcome of their story i want somebody to play one of our games to feel like it's been really good value for money and then hopefully buy the next one (laughs) That's the simple, simple basics of of making entertaining, good computer games. I want to win awards. Sure, it's lovely to win awards from your peers. That's great. I prefer, in many ways, though, to have the appreciation of the audience. That that person that spent their hard-earned cash on one of my computer games, them going, that was worthwhile. I really enjoyed that. That's the ultimate award to win. That's the ultimate accolade. Yeah, and I think that's such like a, it shouldn't be refreshing to hear something like that, but it it is quite refreshing (laughs) to hear something like that in this, you know, very corporatized world. Um, It's Yeah, I mean, we're lucky. My brother and I own the company. We don't have any external shareholders. Our whole philosophy is to do cool stuff. Sure, we need to we need to make profit. There's no question about that. We need to make we need to make money on doing what we're doing. We can take gambles we can put a little bit more budget into a project because we think it deserves it we can delay a project for another few months because it's not quite ready to go out you know we're in that position we don't have to necessarily tell our shareholders we're doing that we don't have to have a real problem with the shareholders going on i'll sell you shares then and then suddenly a whole thing collapses i'm i'm incredibly lucky to be the ceo of a private company that's this big and I, I am insulated from the shareholders giving me a hard time because I'm the shareholder along with my brother. So it's like, technically, give, give yourself I'm, a hard time. Exactly. Technically, I'm supposed to work for the, the, the to better the value of the company. I don't think that's often applied correctly by some CEOs, though, because I think long term value is more important than short term value. But then a lot of CEOs come and go from big companies. So their perspective from a gameplay perspective, their role is to get their personal piece of the shares they're offered as high as possible, as quickly as possible. Jump ship to the next option, opportunity. I'm fundamentally, I believe uh, in running a business because you're making a good thing and the 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 value of the company should be a secondary outcome as a result of it there are many good ceos and bosses of companies out there that are that that take the long-term view as well but an awful lot of short-term managers who when you look at the decisions they make you go that was a bit of a cock up wasn't it that was that that was worth it short short term but long term you've damaged the brand yeah and it's interesting like a lot of the things you've the you know game series that you've done you, they are series that you've done them more than once in a lot of cases and it's like if it was just short-term thinking say uh, maybe correct me if i'm wrong but i imagine the original sniper elite wasn't the biggest game of all time but it was big enough that you were like sure, we'll have another go on that like absolutely yeah pretty much every sniper elite game has, has doubled the sales of the previous one which is which is which is wonderful almost to a spooky extent and that shows you why discovery is important our games are good we've just got to get more people to know they're good and buy them that that's the challenge the challenge is is being found by the algorithm 
And I mean the algorithm in the broadest sense of the word, not the YouTube algorithm or the search algorithm in Amazon or whatever it might be. Those are algorithms and they're important, but the sort of human algorithm of how do how do I make this choice to play this computer game? And yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we, we try to keep a balance between sequels and originals because the original Sniper Elite came from somewhere. <laughs> So we 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 very aware that we need to not take risks exactly, but experiment a little bit with different games. So Strange Brigade was a big success for us. That was a sort of going back to the Saturday morning cartoon style of gameplay, action adventure shows. It had a what I called uh, my invention was the uh, unreliable narrator. There was a narrator that told you what was going on in a lot of these uh, Saturday morning action adventure shows. Because that's a very cheap way of telling the audience what's happening. In in our game, the narrator slightly berates the player. You know, when you press pause, it's like, oh, time for a cup of tea, is it? Things like that. And we, we really lent into this idea of the unreliable narrator. We even created a character for the narrator. The narrator didn't want to be narrating. The narrator was a failed Shakespearean actor who is now kind of eking out a living, kind of doing uh, pantomime in, in Bournemouth. Uh, and had this gig, but is a bit sort of burnt out. So we, <laughs> we even created a character. That, that was fun, coming up with that character. Yeah, so we keep trying. We typically try and do roughly half to two-thirds sequels and roughly half to one-third new original projects. That's that's the idea in the in the game space. That's the sort of broad brushstrokes of what we try to achieve. Yeah, what have you got? On the uh, on the docket at the moment, or are all of them shrouded in secrecy? They are all shrouded in secrecy. So we've got one project, which is an original, uh, new a new IP, which I won't announce yet because we actually don't have a name for it, so we can't really tell <laughs> you. But it's a it's a fun it's sort of an action adventure title. We are hoping to have that finished before Christmas, this Christmas, but it won't be ready to be released for till the middle of, you know, sometime around the middle of next year. So that that's exciting because that's a bit more of a departure for us. It's still an action adventure game, but it's sort of a exploring kind of game genre, still science fiction. And then there's others, there's others which haven't been announced either. But yeah, we, we try to do one big game a year. That, that's the, the plan. It's a good plan. Could I go back and ask you one thing that I forgot to ask you earlier? So it was the point where we were talking about rebellion growing from you and your brother up to, you know, 500 plus people. And it also kind of ties back to what we were saying about your mum and dad maybe being a bit hesitant about you know, the idea of this kind of new form of, of work. But um, I imagine the kind of ultimate signal that this, this was a real job and it did make a, you know, a good contribution, you know, not just to your life, but to lots of people's lives is the fact that you did get an OBE for it. Can you tell us a bit about that? Who gave it to you? Where was it? What did it mean to you? Yes, well, uh, I can tell you that the, the OBE was it was a great honour. So uh, it was given to me my um, Prince Charles then, now King Charles himself. It was given to me for a contribution to the British economy, which is quite nice. I think partly because I was one of the driving forces behind the video games tax relief. So the video games tax breaks, which stopped our industry in the UK. Our industry had been declining. There was a brain drain to Canada and other places. They offered tax breaks similar to the tax breaks for film and TV production. And I campaigned over a decade to through my chairmanship of Tiger, which is one of the games industry development uh, bodies, representative bodies, managed to campaign for uh, video games industry tax rebate, which is roughly 20% of the budget comes back to creators, gives them some skin in the game, allows people to invest with a little less risk. I think it was possibly to do with that. Anyway, so you, you have to get uh, suited and booted and you have to go to Buckingham Palace to get it. And I have to say, I have received lances at the moat of the Tower of London on frequent occasions. I have fought in mock combat, which has got a little bit overheated and become, whilst not real combat, it's become pretty close to real combat. And I've always been slightly nervous about these things, but, you know, you get used to it, the adrenaline. But I have to say, waiting in the queue to get your uh, gong is very nerve-wracking. And, of course, very special for me because of the whole pageantry and the whole heraldry and the whole knightly kind of connotations around it and all the all the staff obviously it's their job they're very polite they ask you your name several times check it's you they tell you things like you know when it's your turn when 
you hear the beginning of your last name. You're supposed to walk forwards. You've got to wait till the other person comes down the steps. And it's all very carefully coordinated. But of course, you don't get any practice. You just get told. And they're all standing there with these white gloves on. They even say to you, if you forget your name, well, you'll get a small shove in the back. <laughs> so we'll, we'll push you forward. So they're obviously kind of got all areas covered. They're all mostly ex-military. So they're very, very well organized, very kind, but very... They want to get through it. You know, this is a, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are to- totally incredibly nervous. So you have to, you have to walk there. You have to turn right angles and you have to go up the step and then you shake hands and you have a brief conversation. I, I told uh, King Charles that uh, he asked a little bit about what I did and I, I said computer games and things and he, he asked me about hobbies and I said, I, I train horses and I joust. And I think he was genuinely, genuinely <laughs> taken aback when somebody <laughs> says they joust and he went, joust, good grief. <laughs> Um, very, very polite. And then when they shake your hand, you're supposed to, you, you have to back down the steps. Now I was terrified about backing down steps. I don't know whether everybody's done it, but it's really quite hard. And you've got a big audience of friends and family as well. And I was just thinking, please don't fall over on your ass. You know, this would be embarrassing. And this is a special occasion. And, you know, you, you back carefully and, and then you turn and then you go around and you collect your actual award. And there's a there's a moment where you're terribly excited. You walk around the corner and there's a big stack of awards there because obviously they're giving lots of people awards. And it's a bit it's not exactly deflating, but it's kind of you realize there's a there's a stack of them. <laughs> other people are getting it, too. So um, it's still still wonderful. And then you do the photographs outside. But it was uh, yeah, it was a, a very special experience going to Buckingham Palace, a genuine palace meeting genuine royalty was uh, was was a great experience, but very nerve wracking. <laughs> it must happen. Law of averages, if you tell us, you know, hundreds of people over a course of years to back down this little flight of stairs, it must happen occasionally that someone does stack it there. Like. Well, I think it does go a little bit wrong occasionally. There was, a, there was an old lady, a few goes before me, there was an old lady who had, had to be helped up the steps to receive her award. And she had a long chat with His Royal Highness. And that was lovely to see. And then the person next kind of went too early. <laughs> So they kind of got grabbed and held a little. They got grabbed and held, held back while the little old lady had to sort of with a, had to be helped down the steps and helped off. So yes, that was a that was a bit of a bit of a moment there. But they they were they were all on it. And I am told that the Gurkha guards, they do have guardsmen, are all heavily armed. So I was desperately hoping that that nobody tripped and was going to get kind of chopped by a by a cookery or something but they, they are genuine guards you know they, they they take their job very seriously so it's a combination of pomp and ceremony but it's also security there's high security there as well amazing sounds sounds like a hell of a day yeah it's it's great it's very it, it has elements of medieval and it has elements of the modern you know in a way it's a shame that people aren't more dressed up in old style clothing but a lot of the obviously the people who are officiating are dressed up in in very interesting clothes and i kept looking at them going i think that's based on a medieval outfit you know in my head hello again i'm just taking a quick break from the episode to tell you about the radiotimes.com gaming newsletter stuff with all the latest news reviews and explainers this free weekly email will really help you stay ahead of the game it'll arrive in your inbox every wednesday highlighting all the releases you need to know about along with my genuine recommendations so if you're enjoying this podcast head over to radiotimes.com slash gaming newsletter to hear more from me every week and now back to the episode And before I let you go, I was going to run through some some quick questions about your own uh, gaming tastes and habits. Uh, first off, uh, what game do you think you've put the most hours into in your life? I used to play a lot of Civilization, the early versions of Civilization. Played that a huge amount. I played Total War Warcraft 2 a lot. I haven't yet upgraded to 3. I've been told by certain people that that's an excellent game, so I'm looking forward to getting into that. Uh, probably play too much of that. I played The Witcher recently. Uh, that was fun. Fallout, Fallout series, played them all through multiple times. Skyrim obviously is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Skyrim is one of those games where you could hang out in the game, which is rather nice. You just chill. And then I played a lot of Strange Brigade recently, and the horde, particularly the Horde mode for some reason. I don't know why. It just it's kind of gets given a bit of an adrenaline hit. And then Zombie Army. I do love the Zombie Army and Sniper Elite series because they're at the heart of what makes us successful. And they're, they're wonderful. But Chris has just acquired a 
Battlezone cabinet, an original working Battlezone cabinet. It's in his office. I am going to try to spend some hours on that. Yeah, try not to like bleed all over it. While yes, exactly. <laughs> and for you, would you prefer a console or PC in general? I find I'm most comfortable with mouse and keyboard controls. So I don't mind console or PC. I don't mind the, the hardware underneath what I'm playing. I need a reasonable size screen, but I am more comfortable with uh, mouse and keyboard than I am with console controllers. I've just been using mouse and keyboard and joystick, quite frankly, for so many decades that it's it's hard to uninvent myself. But there are some games which I find, well, here's the thing. Some games are beautiful, but they're too blooming hard. <laughs> uh, and I find it really upsetting that I play a game, I really want to play it, but it's too hard. Games designers, please make some games, or at least give me a mode in your beautiful game that allows me to put it on novice or basic or tourist mode or whatever. Because I really want to play your game, but I can't because I'm not good enough. Yeah. Um, difficulty level is a really important component of QA. And if anybody in my QA says the level, the easy level is too easy, I remind them that they're a professional games player and they've been playing this game for many, many months and that they should be able to play easy mode, almost blindfolded and not paying attention. You know, games are there to be experienced. I wonder what would happen with movies. You're watching a really complexly, you know, difficult plotted movie and it stops halfway through and it says you can only watch the rest of this movie if you explain the underlying principles <laughs> between the protagonist and the antagonist and give us some background of the, you know, this or that uh, plot point. And you're going, what? I just want to enjoy it and get to the end and then I can have a discussion with people afterwards. But we do that in games sometimes, and it, I find it really frustrating. There have been some beautiful games I really wanted to play, and I tried so hard I can't get past certain levels. And that, I think that's bad games design. I also think it's a sort of slightly arrogant games design because, and I, I, I will tell the, I have told the designers specifically this, I think it's arrogance to assume that people can spend tens of hours on trying to beat your game. What you need to be doing is entertaining and challenging. But you need to also remember that we're, you know, we're, we're competing for people's time. And what a shame if people bounce out of your game having only experienced a third of what you've made over the last few years. That just seems mad to me. Yeah, definitely. Are you more of a gaming chair person or on the sofa type person? Yeah, on the sofa, on my on my chair. I, I often play games on my laptop. I used to play them on my desktop, um, but I play them on the on my laptop now, mouse and keyboard. So kind of neither really. Um, yeah, fair. A, combina- a hybrid of both. Yeah. Do you um, prefer to have you know a head- headset on, or do you like to have it coming out through the speakers, sound wise? I prefer to have speakers um, unless you've got too many of those kind of uggs and ergs sounds that um, <laughs> bad sound design puts into a game. It makes it sound well dodgy if you uh, <laughs> if somebody's listening to you playing the game. Yeah, definitely. And are you more of a solo or multiplayer type person yourself? I love co-op multiplayer, which is why I love the, the, the Sniper Elite kind of co-op modes and the Zombie Army co-op modes. I, I love playing with friends and colleagues. One of the problems of being the boss, though, is if you play competitively, you become it. You become the, the person that everybody wants to shoot, which is fair, fair enough. So if I do play multiplayer games, I go in incognito usually. I don't particularly enjoy the audio sledging kind of culture of of being rude to people that that isn't my thing at all i don't enjoy that so i would on balance i would say solo uh, solo gameplay because i i like my games to uh help me escape into a different world yeah fair and uh back in the day did you ever and console wars are a bit reductive but did you ever choose a side on like nintendo versus sega back in the day or stuff like that uh, no, never, never chose a side because we were working, always working with all of them. So, and they, they each had their own strengths and weaknesses. And of course, I came from the days of Spectrum versus Commodore and uh, Atari versus Amiga. Uh, so the rivalry is is always a bit fake, and it's kind of fun sometimes if it's if it's done lightheartedly. But it, it is a bit tiresome to be honest. It's like they're all they're all enormously powerful pieces of hardware these days. They're super, more or less supercomputers, really. When you when you take yourself back 
10 years to, as to what we've doing. The quality of graphics, the quality of experience is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, definitely. So hypothetically, you've got, you know, this magical evening ahead of you tonight when, you know, there's, there's you know, no work that needs doing, nothing else that needs doing. What, what game are you kind of sticking on tonight? I'm going to have a look for some new games. Uh, I think I think I'd like to have a look at new games. There's people telling me great things about the new Baldur's Gate. I've got a lot of The Witcher still to play. I kind of vaguely keep wanting to go back to Skyrim because I'm I'm doing I'm doing some research for my YouTube channel on uh, inns, taverns, and uh, and alehouses, and I've been thinking about medieval travel. Uh, and of course, I'm one of the few people that can genuinely get on a horse, wear medieval kit, and go for a ride and and travel. And sometimes when I'm playing a game and watching people ride horses in those games i'm thinking yeah that horse needs a bit more training or you're not handling it properly or it's not going well i uh, yeah i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna have a look and and see what i can find on steam uh, that's new that will will take me somewhere new nice nice and uh this one's more just for me but on that hypothetical magical evening in uh you've got to you know you've got to eat something what are you getting in for dinner or sorting out yourself for dinner i love a uh, mild curry or pizza. I do quite a lot of my own cooking as well. Uh, I, I tend to eat simple food. I, I, I did a, I did a series on spicy medieval food, and that's a bit like eating Christmas pudding every day. I don't <laughs> like too many spices in my food, but it's an acquired taste. The medieval palate was very different, if you had the money to have a medieval palate, that is. But I have to say, I do like simple food, like porridge. I, I have a very big soft spot for straightforward porridge porridge with a bit of salt in it nicely cooked that's just comfort food and i i quite like gaming in the winter when it's raining outside and it's dark and that somehow focuses you on the landscape that you're exploring that's that's a beautiful uh image you've just painted in my mind there you know <laughs> the nights are drawing in you've got the steam off your porridge rising up to create some extra atmosphere that was lovely and uh, our final question is always and uh, i know from our emails before that it's your idea of a hellscape but uh, if you could only play one more game for the rest of your life what would it be and why i i i i, I reject the notion of only one more game i'm afraid <laughs> I, I i i couldn't i think as a as a games designer myself and a sort of games maker, I I always want to see what other people, other colleagues are putting together, you know, how they've solved the problem that we had, how they how they deal with this user interface, how they make the player feel powerful or challenged or combination of both, or what landscapes they build for us to explore. So the there being no more games for me would be a form of uh, desolation, entertainment desolation. I play more games, for example, than I than I, I watch a lot of YouTube as well. I play a lot of games, and back in the day, I used to watch TV, you know, broadcast TV. I don't really do that so much these days because there's so many exciting new experiences to to be had, so many places to explore, so many new creators to to discover, and. Um, that, you know, the, the landscape of creativity is ever-growing. It's wonderful. That's a, a beautiful place to, to end on, I think. So I'll, I'll uh, stop it there. But thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. And my absolute pleasure. Thank you for, uh, for chatting. Thank you for listening to One More Life. For more from us, head over to radiotimes.com slash gaming. There you'll find all the latest news, reviews and guides that you need to know about. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and leave a review on your podcast app of choice. We'll be back on this feed soon with some more gaming goodness. And until then, happy playing.